This episode is brought to you by IVP. It's hard to change the world, but when we work in community with others, God helps us achieve the impossible. In his book, When We Stand, activist Terrence Lester teaches us how to see the bigger picture and discern the unique ways we can contribute. Through communal effort, we can discover how our togetherness testifies to the gospel's transformative power. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive When We Stand for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at IVPress.com. This is IVP. If the greatest commandment is rooted in love, then the essence of sin must be failure to love. At the essence of what a life of communion is, it's not rooted simply in obligation and duty. It's rooted in self-giving love for God and for neighbor. And the disruption of that, the antithesis of that is failure to love, which for me is rooted in sin. Lots of people can live according to various moral codes and not love well. And then you look at 1 Corinthians 13, which Paul says, love is the greatest of all these things. If it's not rooted in love, I'm afraid that we can fall into some significant spiritual and religious self-deception. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Digital Examine podcast. I'm Jay. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation, which I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy. Early on in my local church vocational ministry journey, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was working with high school and middle school students and college students and just trying to figure my way through. I've always been an avid reader of books, love reading. And I remember reading one book in particular, and it had such a formative impact on me. And I realized that the author of the book lived and served at a church not far from me. I thought to myself, man, I have so many questions and I would love to be able to ask the author these questions. But I spent months sort of just wrestling with myself. Should I reach out? And I didn't. For months, I didn't reach out because I I thought to myself, there is no way that this person is going to be available to me. There is no way. And the sort of fear of rejection, just resignation on this very important person's lack of availability paralyzed me. And I didn't reach out until one day I was talking with a friend about this and the friend just encouraged me, hey, don't say no for them. Just ask, just reach out. So I did. I emailed the author and within hours, I got an email back. It's kind loving, warm response. Hey, Jay, glad the book was helpful. Would love to meet with you. And just a couple weeks later, there I was in this person's office asking my questions and a new friendship was born. I think sometimes when we think about God, when we think about his presence in the world and in our lives, we um, assume things that are just not true. Now, intellectually, Theologically, often, we know God is always there. He's always present. He's always available. But our visceral, embodied, lived realities tell us otherwise. God's too busy. 
God's too distant. God's got so much going on, an entire world to oversee and to love and to steward. There's no way he's got that much availability in a real way for me. Today's guest is Rich Velotis. He's the author of The Deeply Formed Life and his most recent work, Good and Beautiful and Kind. Many of you know Rich. He's the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, which is this beautiful multiracial church with more than 75 countries represented in uh, Queens, New York. And Rich is one of the most important voices today, in my opinion, when it comes to the Christian life that does the work of journeying into the interior and living wide open to the presence of God. And he's got this wonderful line. Rich says that God is not just available, God is radically available. And so today's conversation delves into God's radical availability, as well as so much more practical, pragmatic ways that you and I might access that availability and live the with God life as we examine how present he is in every moment in all of life. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Rich Velotis. Hey, Rich, thank you so much for joining us on the Digital Examine podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jay. Look forward to a good conversation with you. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of our listeners, because because they listen to this podcast, I have a sense for some of their interests in terms of formation and the life of following Jesus. So I'm assuming a lot of our listeners are really familiar with your work. Um, I know I've benefited a ton from the way you help us journey into the deep interior of our lives and invite God to form us from those places. But um, for the few who may be not as familiar, um, we'll get into your thoughts, obviously, uh, in a moment. But um, tell us a bit of your story and, you know, specifically what catalyzed this sort of journey inward for you uh, personally. Yeah, you know, um, as I tell it, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a home that was indifferent to the things of faith. Uh, but my parents sent me to church as a child with my grandparents who lived down the block from me. I grew up uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and so they would uh, take me to the small Latino Pentecostal church in Brooklyn, where that's where I got my first conceptions of God and um, about, you know, the holiness of God, the power of God. I stopped attending church as a 12-year-old and then found myself back in church as a 17-year-old because I started dating a pastor's daughter and that got me back in the church very quickly. <laughs> and then that relationship came to an end um, about three years later as a 19-year-old. And that church that I used to attend with my grandparents back in the day, they were having a revival service. I decide to go to that church that evening on a Sunday evening because maybe someone could pray for me. I was feeling pretty depressed. And my four younger siblings had been invited to that church, even though as a family, we never went to church. And so I walk over, they're having a revival, usually 20, 30 people there. Um, this time there were about 90 people in the church and a preacher gets up and starts preaching about from Ezekiel 37, about a valley of dry bones and asks who wants the breath of God. And, uh, I responded to that invitation to life in Christ as did about 14 other family members that same night. And so about 15 of us came to faith in Jesus. Uh, my parents, my siblings, cousins, uncles. And from that point on, it, just, it started an eight-month discipleship journey that I went on with my grandfather. My grandfather, who lived down the block from me, was not formally trained in theology, but a brilliant man, a well-read, incredibly thoughtful, 
And when I became a Christian that August of 1999, he died April of 2000. Uh, but for eight months, for I would say four to five days a week, two to three hours each time, uh, we met to talk about the scriptures. We met for him to model prayer for me. We met for me to uh, ask all deep questions about life and he would respond. So for eight months, that was my journey with him. And it was there where I got my first kind of introduction into the interior life. He did it in a way that was not, he wasn't teaching about the interior life per se, but it was just caught. It was a man who was deeply reflective, a man who cultivated silence, a, a man who um, meditated on scripture in a profound way. And so that was kind of like my, my initial foray into um, of the inward journey. I'd say after that, I think of it in three ways. My, my grandfather, number one, that was my college experience. In college, I, I went to a school called Nyack and in New York, a Christian college. And I had a professor introduce me to the works of Thomas Merton and Henry Nouwen. Uh, and that led me into a reading about the desert tradition. As a matter of fact, I had to write an interdisciplinary paper in college around the integration of pastoral ministry and the work of silence. And so I was about 22, 23 years old. So just caught up in the desert tradition and Merton and now. And, and so that as well started getting me into more of an interior perspective, going to a monastery as well. That senior year in college, having an encounter with God at a Franciscan monastery in upstate New York. So that college experience was really significant and again, moving me into the interior world. And then lastly, in 2008, I joined the staff of New Life Fellowship Church and uh, Pete Cazero, who many of your listeners I'm sure are familiar with, uh, planted the church in 1987. And uh, Pete had gone on a journey of emotional health and contemplative spirituality. And so I had read about emotional health and contemplative spirituality, but I wasn't aware of any churches that were actually integrating this into their discipleship paradigm. And so for the last 15 years, uh, I've been here, I've been the lead pastor for the last 10 years, but for the last 15 years being part of this community, I've continued to just explore this aspect of discipleship as part of a larger vision of what formation and discipleship is. But um, those three, my grandfather, my college experience, and New Life Fellowship Church are pretty instrumental. What a profound story. I'm sure many of our listeners obviously are familiar with Pete Scazzaro and his work. It's been formative for me. Um, what's so beautiful about it is our listeners are not familiar <laughs> with your grandfather, and yet yeah. here we are, you know, and what a profound weaving of God's story. I want to ask you just very briefly I don't know that a lot of people give this much thought because we read your books and um, you are this sort of distant friend we do not know in person, but it's it's easy to forget your context. You've spent essentially the entirety of your life in ministry in New York, which is decidedly, you know, we've got some family in New York, so we're there every summer and I love it. It's like a proper city. <laughs> you know, when yeah. people say my city, New York is an actual city. Uh, maybe one of the few around the world that's like a proper city city, but it is mad rush all the time to and fro. That's true for the congregation that you lead yeah. and serve. Has that been helpful or um, challenging or both in terms of the work you do, both personally as a follower of Jesus, the interior work and leading and guiding people who tapping into the interior, slowing down enough to do that is such a challenge. What, what's that like? 
you know, in some ways, because I'm a New Yorker and I've lived in, uh, I lived in Brooklyn, I'll, I'll be 45 in this April of 2024, but I lived in Brooklyn for 33 years, lived in Queens for nine years, and then out in Nassau County, Long Island for the last two years. So I'm a New Yorker through and through. So part of it is I'm not even aware often because it's the water I drink and the air that I breathe, how crazy paced this place is. It's not only until I go other places where I go, why am yeah. I walking so fast? And so on one level... <laughs> I think there's just unawareness that I have around the ways that the city has impacted me. At the same time, I'm aware of it. I think writing about and preaching about this, the way I think about it is if we could do it here, we could do it anywhere. If we can talk about contemplative life here and Sabbath rhythms here and interior examination here, there is a reputation that New York has. All the things that you said are true, fast paced, busy. And yet I do believe that we've discovered there are other rhythms that are available to us, even in a context this hurried and, and harried. Man, that's a really encouraging word. So it's one of the things I hoped you would say, that, <laughs> you know, for our listeners, um, some of whom are listening from New York or many of whom are listening from, you know, busy urban centers where I live. It's a very busy place in the San Francisco Bay Area as well. But for all of us to be able to hear that, man, if it is possible in New York, it is possible anywhere. Um, that's a beautiful thought. This is going to feel like a significant pivot, but it's not because of what you say about it. But I want to talk about that nasty three-letter word that we all love and hate to talk about, sin. <laughs> and you know, when I read your most recent book, your first book, Deeply Formed Life, has been so helpful for our church and for me personally. But uh, your most recent book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, there's this really profound thing you say about sin I think most of us, when we think about sin, most Christians think, okay, that's wrongdoing or some sort of violation of God's moral code. I'm a child of the 90s evangelical youth culture, so I always think sin is missing the mark or whatever. And that's all true in some form or fashion. But you actually say that at its core, sin is a failure to love. Um, expand on that idea for a bit. How does keeping love as the telos or the end goal shed light on what sin actually is and what it's actually doing in us. Yeah. You know, when I wrote my second book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, one of the questions I was asking myself was what's beneath the fractures of our own personal lives and our interpersonal relationships and such, and then beyond that. And it came one day really out of meditating on a very familiar passage of scripture, maybe Mark 12, where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Something we've, I think we've read countless times. It's on our refrigerators and our bathrooms, all the stuff there. And it just hit me one day because I was thinking about sin and in the context of that verse. And the thought really came to me in this way. And so I, I don't think it's novel at all, but at least it was fresh for me in that if the greatest commandment is rooted in love, kind of my theological next step was then the greatest sin or the essence of sin must be failure to love. And so it was that kind of Hold, let me write that down. Let me chew on that for a few weeks and see if it kind of matches up with what I'm seeing altogether in scripture. And, and I think it does because at the essence of what a full life is, what a life of communion is, it's not rooted simply in obligation and duty. It's, it's rooted in self-giving love. 
for God and, and for neighbor. And the disruption of that, the antithesis of that is failure to love, which for me is rooted in sin. And so I think we see this in the scriptures, like even in, in Psalm 51, when David says, you know, against you, you alone have I sinned, where he's not referring to simply a moral code that has been violated. He's not talking about simply missing the mark in the sense of here are the behaviors that I should be doing and that I'm not. Not that these things, of course, don't matter. At the core of of sin, I think, is a disruption of relationship and communion. This is why I think in the Garden of Eden, after in, in the, the beginning of the Bible, sin enters into the world in that kind of a way. And the first thing that's disrupted is not simply uh, a, a moral code. It's relationship. Communion has been disrupted between God and Adam and Eve, between Adam and Eve themselves, between creation and themselves. And so uh, Jay, that was kind of where my mind went with that verse there. And I think ultimately to not view sin as failure to love can lead to all kinds of religious deception, self-deception, because uh, if that's the essence of the spiritual life, lots of people can live according to various moral codes and not love well. And then you look at 1 Corinthians 13, which Paul says, love is the greatest of all these things. If it's not rooted in love, I'm afraid that we can fall into some significant spiritual and religious self-deception. What a great pastoral word. There's a, a sort of freedom there that it's not, mm. um, yeah, this moral code that we have to observe, uh, you know, to the letter of the law. All of those things are an expression of a life of love or at least an aspirational life of living in love with God. You connect it in uh, Good and Beautiful and Kind. Um, I love the way you describe it. You say that Jesus defeated sin. And this makes total sense, like this light bulb moment based on what you just said and what you write about. Jesus defeats sin by way of the strongest substance known to the universe. And then it's like the drum roll, you know, <laughs> what is that substance? Vibranium. And it's, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Black Panther. Um, sacrificial love. Mm. Sacrificial love. And um, if sin is a failure to love, then then at its core, then it makes all the sense in the world that Christ would defeat sin by way of love. Yeah. Not, I mean, re really the reversal of the failure to love, which would be sacrificial love. Yeah. Um, yeah. So along those lines, I mean, what does the way of Jesus, you think, teach us about how we might experience that same victory over sin and death in our lives on a daily basis. What does sacrificial love, um, a life of sacrificial love really, really look like for us today? You know, it's the kind of love that looks like Jesus. And I think the reason why framing sin uh, in larger ways, again, I think there are good biblical reasons to see sin in a multi-layered way. And so missing the mark, I'm fine with that language, as long as that, that's not the only language that we use to, to describe what sin is. It's the self-giving sacrificial love is just a positive, not positive in the sense of just psychological positive, but positive in the sense of I'm not just focusing on what I'm not doing. Thomas Merton said that the devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. And what he means by that is it is so easy to root our sense of identity and uh, the way that we show up in the world, our faithfulness in the world, based on what we're not doing, uh, based on avoidance of sin. And so um, lots of disciples of the devil are made that way. That's what Thomas Merton says. But the Christian vision is not simply about abstaining from stuff, but is what about what am I giving myself to? And sacrificial, self-giving love, a Philippians kind of two love, 
uh, a way of self-emptying for the sake of the well-being of the other is such a Christian act. It's such a Christ-like act. And it's going to look different in different ways. There's no one size fits all here because our life circumstances are different. If you want to get more specific here, but I, but I think for me, if self-giving sacrificial love is at the essence of what it means to, for, for Jesus to put the stamp on the Christian vision of ethics and what it, and spirituality, I think that's what we're invited into as well. Not simply what we're abstaining from, but what we're giving ourselves to. I want to invite you to take a moment and consider deeply what Rich is saying here, that it's not just about focusing on what I'm not doing. Sin often gets sort of misunderstood as a list of um, things not to do. And it is so easy, like Rich says, to root our sense of identity, our sort of goodness or success as followers of Jesus on all of the things that we are not doing. God, I, I, I must be in your good graces because I am not whatever, fill in the blanks. The sort of pharisaical posture where we look at the other and we say, well, at least I'm not doing what he's doing or she's doing or what they're doing sort of false righteousness but that sort of life lacks love because again as rich says the christian vision of love isn't primarily about abstaining it is abstaining for sure but primarily for the sake of then giving ourselves of participating actively effortfully in giving ourselves in love to God and to the world for his glory and for the good of all. That's self-giving sacrificial love. So take a moment and ponder if that is the life you are pursuing, a life that is giving yourself away and more specifically and practically, ask yourself the question, what is one act of love, participatory, effortful love, what is one act of love that I could do today for God's glory and for the good of others? Take a moment, ponder that, commit to it, and then we'll return to our conversation with Rich. Do you ever feel like you're stuck in a spiritual wilderness, confounded by doubt and confusion? In the years since leaving local church ministry, Mike Cosper has been devoted to examining the church's often troubled witness, its ongoing crisis of leadership, and the epidemic of narcissism, abuse, and cover-up. In his book, Land of My Sojourn, Cosper combines significant locations in Israel with studies of Peter, Elijah, and Jesus to imagine a new spiritual landscape, one where we're not alone in the often mysterious wilderness. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on Land of My Sojourn at ivypress.com.
It strikes me that to live the way of Jesus, to love as Jesus loved, to not think about sin management. Gosh, these, these are the list of things I just have to not do. And then I'm, you know, I'm good. But rather, you know, not just abstinence, but proactive participation mm -hmm. in um, partnering with God to bring good into the world. Uh, when I think about that, the challenge is left to ourselves, we'll never live life that way. Yeah. <laughs> We're just far too selfish, mm. far too self-indulgent and self-centered to be able to live consistently that way. So this um, constant ongoing withness with God, you know, is so critically important. And again, in um, Good and Beautiful and Kind, you describe God's presence. I love this line. You describe God's presence as radically available, radically available, which I think grates against, uh, it grates against, you know, modern conventions, even for Christians. We just think like, well, I don't know, Rich, is it radically available? I mean, yeah. I get it theologically, intellectually, God's presence is available, you know, with yeah. air quotes, yeah. but radically available sounds nuts, you know, <laughs> especially as we navigate the chaos of life that is yeah. the 21st century, you know, our, our visceral experience of God, even for me, and I think even in moments probably for you, like Absolutely. it has felt far from radically available. Mm -hmm. So Tell us a little bit more. Spend some time diagnosing that delta, you know, like why does it feel not radically available, even though it is? And then, and then give us some practical ways that we can reorient our lives around God's radical availability. Yeah. You know, just a, a note around the radical availability of God's presence. You know, I think to have a high theology of the Holy Spirit is to subscribe to that kind of statement. If I believe that the Holy Spirit has been poured out, if I believe that when Jesus ascended to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, that uh, he was pouring out his very self on the world. I also think about, you know, uh, Paul's uh, language in Acts 17, uh, where he's in conversation with philosophers and he talks about, you know, God appointed our time in history um, so that people would seek him. And, and reach out for him and, and, and find him. And then he adds a line, though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. And so um, I think on one level, to be taken by faith, trust in what has been revealed in the Holy Scriptures, having a high pneumatology, a high theology of the Spirit, um, taking Paul's words seriously in Acts 17, uh, that's the truth that's been revealed. And so the question is, to what degree am I attentive to that truth? Uh, God's presence is available. To what degree am I attentive? And this is where I think um, there there is the paradox here of grace and effort um, that comes into play. Um, you know, Annie Dillard, um, I'm a fan of, of Annie, and um, she's written a number of things on writing. And um, whenever I train preachers about how do you, uh, you know, how do you get that thing from scripture to animate your message? Um, there's a quote from Dillard where she says something to the effect of that, that at its core, writing is an act of unmerited grace. And then she qualifies it by saying, 
um, that, that it is handed to you, but only if you look for it. Uh, and then, you know, you, you search, you break your, your brain, your back, and then it's handed to you. And she's holding on to this really, I think, important principle that grace and effort, uh, as Dallas Willard would say, uh, it are not mutually exclusive. You know, God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning, as is kind of so, to summarize Willard. And so um, if God's presence is radically available, to, the question for me is to what degree am I opening myself up in the form of attentiveness to that? This is where I think, I, I really believe, Jay, I don't, I, maybe folks will get nervous about this kind of language here, but I, I really believe that we need more mystics uh, and God invites us into a kind of mysticism. That's not to be weird. That's not, that's to simply say that, that if we believe that the Holy Spirit has been poured out uh, and that God's presence is here, that we are to live into that. And that doesn't mean, I think about Mother Teresa um, and her memoirs um, when um, she serves the poor. And in her memoir, she writes about her long, dark night of the soul. Like, how can Mother Teresa, someone who's so holy, still experience what seemed like the silence of God, the dark night of the soul? And I do think that's part of the journey as well, that to say that God's presence is radically available doesn't mean we're going to experience the fullness of it. Um, and that's my story. I mean, there are times when even in 10 minutes of silent prayer, Jay, if I set my timer for 10 minutes and I have Jesus, here I am on my lips, I can tell you how many times my mind is distracted in 10 minutes. And it's almost like a sliver of like 20 seconds of those 10 minutes is like, whoa, something is like, something's happening deep beneath the soul. And then my timer goes off like right then. I'm just like, no, I was just, I was just getting somewhere. And I think God does that for a couple of reasons. I think God does that because God knows, I, I think that we can become very transactional in our life with God in prayer. So we're just going to God to get some stuff out of it, as opposed to simple act of loving union with God and stillness. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying God's presence is available, I, I, but I do think we need a greater capacity for um, for attentiveness. It's a great line, living in loving union with God, which is itself the gift. You know, I think I'm with you. I, I am so tempted to have this sort of transactional approach to God, to view him as the cosmic vending machine. I say my prayers yeah. and press B6 and then there's the bag of <laughs> Funyuns or whatever, you know, it's always and, B6. And then utter, yeah, that's right. B6. And there's, you know, the utter frustration when, yeah. when I don't, when I don't get the thing I mm -hmm. want, but the gift is the, the presence. I want to, maybe this is a more personal question, but, and I don't mean to ask it um, for you to be prescriptive, just descriptive, but one, I just think a lot of our listeners are probably curious about this. I know I am, but also just to inspire thoughts and ideas. Uh, if, if you're willing, I would love to ask you, um, I love the Willard quote, you know, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. What does your rhythm of effort look like, you know, for, for Rich Lotus, what, what do you do? Give us a picture like in a week or a month, what sort of rhythms or maybe an annual rhythm that you might have, what does it look like for you to intentionally effortfully push away distraction and give your attention to God? Yeah. I'll, I'll think of it like daily, weekly, monthly, you know, the daily is there are three practices for me that have um, helped me over the years. Um, one is just silent contemplative prayer. 
I would say 80% of my time with God is spent in this way. And that's simply, I set my timer. I usually have like a centering prayer app or something like that. Uh, I just like it because it has monastic bells uh, and the monastic bells puts me in a different uh, state of mind. Um, uh, and I usually set it for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15. If I want to get really um, courageous here, 20, a little bit more. I, I want, there are a few times I've done 30 minutes and I thought I was going to die in the process. Uh, and I'm just <laughs> like, no, I'm still here. Um, so that's for me kind of depending on what I do, I'm a parent. I, you know, my wife and I have rhythms. We pick the kids up from school. We drop them off. We have, you know, took my son to his orthodontist appointment yesterday. I mean, there's a lot going on, but for me, that's a daily. So centering prayer, um, interior examination, uh, and through in my journals. Um, and so my, my journals is more seasonal. So there are times when I'm journaling every day for a season and there are times when it's maybe once a month where I'm journaling. Uh, but journaling has been really significant in just um, helping me to pay closer attention to God. And then thirdly, it's just uh, praying the Psalms and reading the scriptures. I mean, praying the Psalms, I have my book of common prayer over here um, that I'm just trying to pray the Psalms and various portions of scripture. So that's, that's kind of a daily weekly in terms of my rhythms. Sabbath is really important to me. So um, uh, Friday night to Saturday night is usually uh, our Sabbath as a family. So there's just space that's automatically created for a greater reflection. Not that I'm praying the entire 24 hours, but there's just more a greater capacity uh, to do that. As a pastor, our, our, our team has uh, on the third Wednesday of each month was called the day alone with God, uh, where we are, our goal is not to come into the office, not to work on emails, but to find a place in our city, uh, a retreat, um, a library, a, a book, a coffee shop, um, uh, the beach, whatever it is. Uh, and your goal is for a number of hours that day to simply be with God, to read, to be in reflection. So that as a team, that's what we're doing. And then annually, I'm finding usually a, um, a, a monastery. Uh, I usually go to one in the Boston area where I uh, spend a few days. Uh, that's in a given year ways that I'm trying to orient my life um, towards God through some of these rhythms and practices. It's really beautiful, really helpful for, for our listeners. You know, I'm sure that conjures up all sorts of ideas and potential rhythms for your life. But in summary, I just I, I love the fact that you are pointing us toward um, participatory effort. You know, yeah. in, in the busyness of life, in the chaos that is 21st century life in the modern Western world, um, attention will not just happen because mm. there is so much vying for our attention. And if I can encourage someone here, what keeps me going is something I've seen in the Gospels with Jesus, whether we're talking about a mustard seed or whether we're talking about a, a little boy's fish and bread, a little bit in Jesus' hands goes a long way. And uh, even if you can only muster up five minutes a day to do some to be with God in stillness and in silence, even if it's just one Bible verse that you are reflecting on, a little bit in Jesus' hands goes a long way. And I think lots of folks can get feel lots of guilt that they're not doing more, they're not doing more. And I think God hears that as a cry, as a prayer in, in and of itself. But a little bit in Jesus' hands goes a long way. Such a freeing word. You know, um, as we conclude here, Rich, I just I want to ask you again, I know you your work has had from a distance, it's had so much impact and influence um, on the formational journeys of so many. So, uh, you know, one of the things I love about you that just really 
comes through in your ministry and, you know, we've got mutual friends who just speak so highly of you. Uh, despite the public nature of so much of your work, you really are a pastor through and through, um, serving a local congregation, um, putting them, your family, and then them first. And I love that. So, uh, you know, if you would imagine our listeners, our many listeners as your congregation for a moment, would you just as we conclude, would you give us a pastoral word of encouragement in the midst of our discouragement that this is so hard to do, to, to tap into the radical availability of God? Would you just give us a pastoral word of encouragement? You know, the first thing I would say, and hopefully this gets to the telos of uh, the, the ultimate aim of what we're doing here. I think the greatest gift we offer the world around us is our ongoing transformation in Jesus Christ. And that's the invitation um, that's before us. And so before we even talk about how hard it is, here's the aim. The aim is you were made for such a significant life. You were made for a life of that kind of communion with God. And the greatest gift you offer is not the kind of job you have, not the kind of income you you have, not the kind of uh home, whatever it is, it is the formation of your life uh, as it resembles Jesus Christ. So that's, that's number one. The second thing I would say, and this is stuff that I pastor my church with week in and week out, uh, is to say we can't do it alone. Um, one of the reason why I have loved the monastery and why we our first value as a congregation is the word monastic is because not simply because of the invitation to a life of prayer, but it's an invitation to a life of prayer in community. Uh, what makes, what sustains the monk, uh, the nun, uh, the, the person who's committed their life to God in prayer is an act of community. They can't do it alone. And I think that's what my encouragement to everyone. Um, you, you're going to need people around you uh, in order to help you sustain your life with God. And then the last thing I would say, uh, my word of encouragement is um, deepening our lives with God requires, and this is what I received from my mentor, Pete, um, requires us to pay close attention to our limits, uh, to the particularities of our own lives. Um, one of the great dangers of the spiritual life is comparison, is looking at what other people are doing and what we're not doing and to determine our worth therein. But I think... Um, we all have limits. We all have special needs and things that we must pay attention to. And so I think the, the, the faster that we're able to say, these are the limits that I have, not in a lazy kind of a way where we go, I'm not going to focus here, but in a way that recognizes these are the true limitations that are before me, personally, interpersonally, whatever it might be. And I'm going to give God what I have, uh, trusting that God can do a lot with it. Uh, and so... Um, we need one another. The ultimate end is Jesus Christ and conformity into his image. Uh, and then a recognition of the particularities of our own life, I think, are really important. Uh, we, we No one has a private relationship with God, but we all have a unique relationship with God. And uh, the uniqueness of our circumstances, the relationships, our own pers personalities. And I think those things need to be paid close attention to as we seek to be faithful to what it means to follow Jesus. Man, thank you so much, Rich, for this conversation, um, for so much of your work, uh, for giving us your time and the gift of your life and the gift of your, mm -hmm. your ministry. Um, for folks who maybe have not yet accessed, um, so much of the work that, that's out there and available, what's, um, 
what or where is the easiest place people can go to, to connect with you? Yeah, if you went to richfullotus.com, you'll, you'll see some of the projects that I have um, put out and forthcoming projects. Um, if you want to go to newlife.nyc, that's where um, you'll see what we're doing as a local church family. And then um, I'm usually on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now, and, um, and Instagram. Um, and so those are at richfullotus. That's usually where um, I'm either ch- testing out ideas for sermons and books or I am sharing my love and passion for all things uh, sports, especially with my New York team. So um, uh, things could get out of hand very quickly on social media. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Rich, thank you again uh, for your time, for joining us on the Digital Examine podcast. Um, really appreciate you. Thank you, Jay. So good to be with you. Thanks, you guys, again, for joining us for this conversation with Rich Velotis. I hope it was as inspiring and helpful to you as it was to me personally. Um, and as you go on to the rest of your day or your week or your month or your year, whatever it might be, may you go in uh, the incredible um, knowledge of knowing that God's presence is radically available to you, that he is closer than you could possibly imagine. Grace, peace, love. We will talk to you all very soon. The Digital Examine is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Helen Lee, Travis Albritton, and Andrew Bronson. Our production assistants are Christine Policcio and Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, J.Y. Kim. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast.